We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, the Techlash bandwagon, companies, people and governments. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Sandra, what happened in the future this week? Well, this week comes on the back of quite a few weeks of negative sentiment around social media, all sorts of problems about social media emerging. We've seen this in the context of social networks. We've seen this in the context of big tech elections and so on. But this week we're seeing some concrete action on this front. Hashtag TechLash. So we discussed Hashtag break up big tech, Elizabeth Warren's proposal and a whole bunch of similar attempts to, you know, narrate a way forward to how to deal with Facebook and Google. And this week there was a conspicuous amount of articles that approached this problem in different ways. We have companies quitting social media. We have some data around how people, especially in the US, seem to be fed up with social media. And we have governments taking genuine action against social media or sometimes taking popular action around social media. Especially here in Australia. So we thought we'd pick three stories, one around how companies are doing TechLash, one around how people are actually trying to take action, and a couple of stories around how governments are responding to this. So we're starting with an article from the BBC titled Lush Quits Social Media in UK. So Lush, obviously, the British cosmetics firm, well known for its fancy soaps, bubble bath, bath bombs, and other well-smelling shit. So of course, Lush is available here in Australia as well, and their products look actually very, very pretty. Just think of the ginger ninja that looks like a piece of ginger with eyes and some called ninja kind of thing, or a bath bomb called groovy kind of love in all colors of the rainbow or, you know, the lucky cat. Really? Really. They've also got Madam President and Strawberry Hill and, you know, a thing that looks like a brontosaurus egg with a baby brontosaurus in it. And while these are all interesting names and we can all have a little bit of a laugh about it, the point here is Lush is an incredibly visual company even though it's all about the smell, of course, which means it's a very Instagrammable brand. And yet Lush has announced that it's closing its uh, social media accounts in the UK. It announced this news on Twitter and it actually confessed to being, and I quote, tired of fighting with algorithms. It wanted to stop paying to appear in people's news feeds and it basically closed its Facebook account, Twitter account and Instagram account. And just to put this into context, Lush has over 200,000 Twitter followers and more than half a million followers on Instagram and almost half a million likes on Facebook. So this is not a small following. 
And the article mentions that they are not the first British company to quit social media. Last year, British pub chain Weatherspoons removed itself from all social media, citing concerns about personal data misuse and the addictive nature of the platforms and so taking a stand against the negativity surrounding Facebook and the like. While the article points out they had a relatively small community of 100,000 Facebook followers and 6,000 on Instagram, I would think 100,000 Facebook followers for a pub is not a bad outcome. The point here is that increasingly companies are rethinking whether they're actually getting value out of being on social media and whether this is indeed the best place to connect with their customers given the trolling, the negativity, and the exploitation by the algorithms of anything that we put on Facebook that is going on. So the question is, why did Lush do this? On the face of it, they said, and I quote, we don't want to limit ourselves to holding conversations in one place. We want social to be placed back in the hands of our communities, from our founders to our friends. In this, Lush really hinted that they would try a new social media approach where they would rely basically on hashtags for those people who wish to engage with the brand. They would also engage with customers one-on-one -on -one in online chats on their own website or indeed in phone conversations, the company said. So by and large, they are going for more one-on-one -on -one conversations with a smaller number of users instead of the oftentimes uncontrollable and quite noisy interactions that you get on social media. So how genuine is this move? As an optimist, I want to hope they did it for the right reasons. I want to hope they did it for the sake of regaining some control over how they engage with their customers rather than being stuck in the never-ending game of posting more and more content that is clouding people's feeds and paying to get up there. So on the face of it, I really want to believe that's the reason behind it. Because obviously the cynical move would be to quit, get media attention, and then, you know, once the user says, oh, the fans you ask cannot you back. possibly quit, then, you know, just retract and keep on going. On the other hand, the article mentions that, oh, this seems such a counterintuitive move in this age of influencers and sponsored content and so on. But interestingly, they have actually said that they are going to work more with influencers. So the brand will not disappear from social media. It's just that they're not running their own accounts. On the other hand, it might not actually be a counterintuitive move because for the past two years now, and again, we've mentioned this on the podcast about two years ago, there's been a rising tech lash sentiment. And they might actually be trying to catch the beginning of that wave where people are actually tired of social media, where brands with a social conscience might actually be trying to go on the social media diet. So they might be trying to catch the beginning of that wave, in which case, yes, it would be a publicity stunt as well, but of a different sort than just trying to retreat and come back to social media. On the other hand, they might also be riding a different wave, which is the one trending towards a new kind of social media, which is one-on-one -on -one engagement with customers through companies having their own apps. So there was an article in Fast Company titled Influencers are Flocking to a Surprising New Kind of Social Media, which mentions a little-known company called Escapex, which are building bespoke apps for celebrities, so for single influencers, for single people who can have their own app 
in which they can connect with their fan base, oftentimes through paid access. So you might pay $5 per month for access to the private life of this celebrity. And then the person itself can post photos throughout the day of their life without actually fearing that they're being trolled or that the algorithms of the platform provider will appropriate the content and use it for advertising purposes and also being in control of who gets onto the app and who not. So if someone doesn't behave in the way the person approves of, they can just ban a user from the platform. So you regain control and you're actually in charge of the conversation. And we would think that this is not just a model that works for celebrities and their fans, but also for interesting brands such as Lush. And indeed, this has been the way that some of the very high-end brands have engaged with their customers quite frequently. Companies like Hermes, for instance, maker of famous Birkin bags and Kelly bags and beautiful scarves, have had their own app through which they engage with the customers. And they can gain quite significant followings. And if we look at the number of influencers on Escapex, there is over 350 influencers, but their collective audience is 3.5 billion people. So it's not an insignificant number of followers that would move from platforms such as Instagram to actually engage with influencers or brands within their own apps. So what we might be seeing here is in a way a tech lash against the big platforms who have made it their business model to appropriate people's content and selling people's privacy to advertisers for people and brands to retake control and run their own social platforms, which are not networks in the sense that they are network everyone with everyone, but are more hub and spoke solutions where someone would have multiple apps on their phone, which are arguably just a tap away, but then would get fairly well curated content from those brands or people they want to and not a polluted stream of content that includes all kinds of shit. And it would also give influencers and potentially organizations some control back over the type of content that they want to post. They would not be at the mercy of an algorithm in terms of what content gets promoted. They would not have to pay for that promotion. They could also engage with audiences on their own terms, not just through content that works, but maybe through content that they consider is important. And while this might further amplify the stardom that we see on social media, the rather superficial practice of many fans following the one celebrity, at least does away with the advertising-driven business model that Facebook is running and creates an honest you-get-what-you-pay-for solution. And this actually might give people one alternative to getting out of the ecosystems of places like Instagram or Facebook, which is actually where we want to go with our second tech clash story, which comes from NBC News. And it's actually a segment from Meet the Press that reports on Americans turning against social media by really wide margins. So it's not an article per se, but a short video clip, which, of course, we're going to link to in the show notes. It reports on an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that found that, by and large, people are not feeling very positive towards tech. 
the numbers are quite staggering. When asked about their feelings towards tech, only between 50 and 60 percent of people said they feel positively towards companies like Apple or Google or Amazon. And when it came to social media networks, those feelings dropped dramatically. Only 24 percent of people said they had positive feelings towards Twitter and only 36 percent had positive feelings towards Facebook. On the other hand, when asked about feelings about social media in more general terms, 55% of people said that there were lies and falsehoods on social media, 61% said there were unfair attacks and rumors, 57% on divides us, and 82% said social media is a waste of time. So 82%, this is a staggering change from just a couple of years ago when social media was seen as the enabler for movements like the Arab Spring or the enabler for the Occupy Wall Street movement. Social networks were really seen as leveling the playing field for everybody. So this is a staggering move in the other direction. And this goes hand in hand with the increasing distrust we have towards technology. 37% of people distrusted Google and over 60% of people distrusted Facebook. And so this is what underpins tech clash at the individual level. And there was a number of articles in recent times, some during this week, which report on the various things that individuals have tried to get away from these tech companies to quit social media. We all remember the campaigns to delete Facebook or delete Uber both in the wake of scandals such as the Cambridge Analytica one. So this follows alongside a number of other trends coming out of Silicon Valley, famous among which is the longstanding practice by some of the tech executives in the Valley to set limits or forbid their children altogether from spending time on the social media platforms or really from spending a lot of time online. And there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald last month on why technologists are setting limits on their family's screen time. It was really looking at the side effects that digital devices and social media are having on children spending too much time online. Concerns around brain development or learning disorders or just the fear that spending too much time online, kids are exposed to all the negative trends we've discussed around content pollution on these platforms and YouTube kids showing harmful videos or setting them up for a life of smartphone addiction, really. So... Executives from companies like Facebook or Google not wanting their children to become customers or users of the products that they make. So a very interesting form of tech lash, really. And that ties in with a broader trend around digital detoxing, which all comes from the same sentiment around fighting or at least raising awareness of smartphone or tech addiction. And also, in a quite entertaining way, attempts by often journalists to quit entirely the use of social media or particular ones of the tech brands. So we found an article just this week. So this was about a woman who tried to quit either Facebook or Google one at a time, but really tried to quit one of the big tech companies. So this is Gizmodo's Kashmir Hill, who previously did the same for Amazon. In this instance, she set out to not use any Google services at all. So what she did is she had a colleague build a private VPN service that would block all of Google's 8,699,648 IP 
addresses. And it's quite revealing what she reports on the back of this. So besides having to, you know, use a different search engine like DuckDuckGo and an email alternative such as ProtonMail, Apple Maps as a Maps alternative, Yelp and Firefox as a browser, for example, it turns out Google underpins so many more services. So, for example, she wasn't able to log into her Dropbox because Dropbox would use an invisible Google capture for user verification. She couldn't stream songs from Spotify because Spotify is hosted in Google Cloud. Her Uber and Lyft wouldn't work because both of those use Google Maps. On Airbnb, photos won't load. New York Times articles won't appear because the site tried and failed to use Google Analytics, Google Pay, Google News, Google Ads, and a double-click tracker all owned by Google, of course. And this reminds me of an episode we did almost two years ago, which was one of our most popular podcasts in 2017, where we actually asked our listeners to choose which one of the frightful five of the big five tech companies they would abandon and in what order. Remember that one? I remember that one well. And it's still true that the one of the five that you can easily quit is actually Facebook. Although there was an article this week which outlines that even if you delete your Facebook account, they still keep tracking you around the web. So, As an individual, technically, you could give up Facebook and still lead a somewhat normal life. Yeah, but you can't really quit Google. You can't really quit Amazon because... And you can't really quit Apple. <laughs> and I do not want to quit Apple. No, I don't. But the reason why we're discussing this is to show that sometimes what sounds like a good idea, I quit big tech or I quit Google, in practice doesn't really always work out that well. And that brings us to our third category of TechLash, which is government regulation and guidelines. And we've seen quite a few of those in the last couple of weeks, not all of which to us look entirely practical. So let's look at some genuine attempts to provide some guidelines, not yet regulation, but some guidelines around AI and ethical AI. Because let's not forget, there's also some populist ones. Which we will come back to before we finish this podcast. But our last article comes from Tech Republic, and it's titled How the European Union's AI Ethics Guidelines Will Impact U.S. Businesses, and tries to give an overview of the European Union's key requirements for trustworthy AI. So first of all, the EU has been criticized by some commentators to say, oh yeah, of course the EU now has to play in the ethics game because they're really not up to the task to actually play in the actual AI field because that's exclusively between the Americans and the Chinese. But to frame it in these ways, it's actually missing the point because I do think the European Union, and I have shown this with GDPR, have a genuine concern for the welfare of their citizens and they're trying to put forward guidelines that do not regulate, but at least give guidance to how companies should develop AI into their products. And there is a question whether self-regulation actually works in this area. So it might be a bit like talking about self-taxation. Yes, that never worked. But the EU's guidelines do point to some very interesting aspects that are often discussed in the context of ethical AI. Things like transparency, things like safety and robustness or fairness and non-discrimination, privacy and data governance, all of which are addressed by these guidelines, also things like accountability. But they also cover some ground that 
really hasn't been generally addressed when we talk about ethical AI. And here I'm thinking about things like um, the impact of AI on the environment. One of the uh, guidelines put forward concerns societal and environmental well-being, and it talks about the fact that AI systems should be used to enhance positive social change and enhance sustainability and ecological responsibility. And this is not something that is often discussed in the context of ethical AI. So the guidelines outline those seven areas which you've just summarized, but to me what's also of interest here is the practicality of applying those guidelines. So first of all, the guidelines talk about AI systems as if that was a thing, right? So AI seems to be this robot thing with agency that we can easily identify when we see it and then we can talk about it and regulate it. But AI is just a different form of computing and it's actually a collection of many different techniques such as machine learning techniques or deep learning. So the question of whether something is AI and the guidelines should apply is in no way straightforward. And then the second problem here is that some of these guidelines or principles are reasonably lofty. So they talk about explainability, for example. So a decision being made by an AI system needs to be explainable to a human. But it doesn't actually talk about what explainable means. So the old example applies. Google shows me an ad and then Google explains why it showed me this ad because it corresponds to websites I previously visited. So that's an explanation. Is that explanation helpful? No, it's not. But they explained to me why they showed me this ad. So the same might apply to AI. And we've discussed a number of times because of the black box nature. Some of these algorithms make decisions in a way that is essentially opaque and not explainable. So how realistic or how practical the application of these principles will be in practice is entirely unclear. So it's a good step in the right direction. And a similar step has been taken by the UK government, which really mirrors the EU concern with disinformation and hate speech and online extremism or child exploitation. And British officials put forward this 102-page white paper that tries to curb the harmful effects of social media platforms and other large online tech companies. And the same questions of practicality arise in the British context as well, where the paper really talks about a potential yet undefined, undescribed internet regulator who would be created somehow to enforce these rules with tools that do not exist yet to block offending sites, for instance, from being accessed in the United Kingdom or forcing people not to do business with people who post offensive content. But of course, in here is both the practicality of having such a regulator or of having the tools to enforce such regulation, but also the difficulty in the definition of terms. And you've mentioned things like AI, but also things like harm. Defining what harmful content is is extremely difficult. And then also establishing a causal relationship between harmful content online and behavior or effects in the real world is again quite difficult. So not unexpectedly, a number of critics and of proponents of free speech have raised concerns to the fact that this might open the door to state-sponsored censorship or at least to state-sponsored surveillance, which would be needed to identify the offensive content and then to be able to remove it. Now, 
To their credit, both the EU and the UK government have put out their guidelines and ideas for consultation. So the UK one is a white paper at this stage. The EU has not put out regulations but guidelines. And indeed, in this respect, the EU regulations take probably the best way forward in which they've made these guidelines a living document to be constantly reviewed and updated as many of these technologies are changing quite rapidly. And then there is the Australian government, which in the face of the looming federal election has hammered out in five days a piece of legislation that comes in the wake of the serious incident in Christchurch, but has nonetheless surprised commentators in its far-reaching and quite draconian nature. So Australia has passed a law requiring social media to immediately, rapidly remove violent material. And if they fail to do so, the penalties would include things like prison time for company employees or forfeiting up to 10% of the company's profits. So you can imagine the enthusiasm in the Facebook headquarters when the Australian government comes along and said, oh, you know, there was this video and you didn't take it down within five minutes. So please hand over 10% of your revenue. So quite rightly, people have pointed out that this seems to be a stunt that comes in the wake of trying to gain popularity with people in the face of the election. Because, first of all, how do you actually make the causal connection between a video being posted, it not being taken down rapidly? How is that even defined? In Germany, it's defined as 24 hours in which companies are required to remove obviously illegal content. And this has already proven extremely difficult to meet given the sheer volume of content that is being uploaded every second to these platforms. And then imagine how to establish which one of the many executives in Facebook or Google will have to go to jail for this. So the actual practical nature and applicability of this law seems to be fairly limited to say the least. Well, there is one obvious way to get around the limitations, and that is to ban things altogether. And in this respect, China's top economic body has just proposed new rules that would really address tech problems altogether, which is to say they are looking to close all cryptocurrency mining facilities in China. And this harks back to our EU AI ethics guidelines that we just discussed, where environmental concerns are increasingly part of the conversation. And China, of course, has the world's biggest cryptocurrency mining farms, which are an enormous strain to the environment. We'll include one of our previous episodes in the show notes where we discussed just how much goes into mining cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And really for the world's most popular cryptocurrency, roughly half the mining activities in the world are assumed to be happening in China. And the government has identified this as an energy wasting practice and as a polluting practice. And this is why mining cryptocurrency was among the industries that would be eliminated immediately should this National Development and Reform Commission guidelines be enacted. And while it is known that China is not in favor of the unregulated nature of cryptocurrencies in general, we can assume that there's a genuine concern here for the energy hunger of Bitcoin mining. And even though many of the miners are placed near hydropower stations, obviously that energy consumed will not be available elsewhere in the system. So hashtag Techlash, companies 
individuals, governments, all trying to find a solution to fight back. So over the last few years, we've gone from very positive utopian views of technology to concrete applications to a diffuse anger and negativity around tech. And we're now seeing at least some solutions emerging how those entities, companies, people and governments can deal with the problems emerging from technology. Remains to be seen if enough momentum can be gained this time around as we were having the same conversations about this time last year. But that's all we had time for today. See you soon. On the future. Next week. This week? Yes, but next week. On the future this week. Next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor, Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden hoses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.